friends. Please forgive me for the late start. It was a very busy morning. And I got a little preoccupied. But have no fear. Hello, Lara. Hello, Michael David. Okay. Let's do this. I wanted to be able to give you my undivided attention. That's not so simple. It's not so simple. Ladies and gentlemen, forgive me for a somewhat tardy beginning, but you will have my undivided attention, and I hope I'll have yours as we continue to move into the next argument or the next reason that you and I should place our unreserved trust in Hashem and live with perfect certainty. Now, learning how to trust is no easy thing. And there's a lot to think about, a lot to contemplate, until it filters through into our hearts and the way we view ourselves in life. And that's what this class is really all about. Without shortcuts, without glossing over things, without rushing through important points. Before I begin, I want to gratefully acknowledge the sponsors for today's class. Once again, my dear friends, our beloved show members, Sarah and Ian Magid. And today's class is dedicated in honor of and for the merit of their new inical, the new grandson, who was entered into the covenant of Avraham Avinu just a couple of days ago and given the beautiful name Boaz Yechiel. May he have much strength and bring life and vitality, godly life and vitality into everything that he will do, Mir Hashem. Today we are going to analyze the fourth quality. Well, the fourth is really the second the Nedeb HaKadosh is going to tell us. As a station identification, or just a reminder, in the second chapter of the Shara B'Tochen, of this gate of trust, the author laid out seven criteria that would be necessary for you to be able to trust somebody else, say a 
provider. How do you know they're going to be there for you? How can you trust them? <laughs> How can you have no anxiety and no worry because you're relying on them? So Rabbeinu B'chaya listed seven criteria which had to be met. And now as he's reimagining this criteria, as we've explained many times over the last couple of episodes, in an emotional way, in a way which tugs at our heartstrings, the first, the, pardon me, the second thing he introduced previously, as the Neder Bakredish points out, Hu Inyin Sheini, this is the second thing that was discussed earlier. Here, in the reimagination, representation, which depicts Hashem as the sole, really the only one in the running, the sole possible source for real trust, it becomes not the second, but actually the fourth. So let's begin to study inside. If you're using the Kihat edition, you can open to page 62. The fourth criteria. Because God, and I'll tra- this, translate this literally, but of course there's much more than what the English word or translation kind of conveys. God supervises the Hanhaga, the behavior, because that's really what hanhaga means, the word hanhaga means come like, comes from the term nahag, like in modern Hebrew, a driver, that which drives the human condition, the, the behaviors and the choices that people make, which he translates as governance. God, God essentially supervises the governance of all people. I don't know if I agree with that translation. <laughs> I don't know why he has to supervise the governance. Do we not have the freedom to choose? Isn't it more like God is supervising or paying attention to all of the ways of people, or the things that people are doing? Well, as I said, the truth is that Hebrew can never be properly translated, so we're going to discuss this at some, at some length and in detail. And regardless of which words you ultimately choose to translate these words with, it isn't about the words, and it's really about the understanding. So the first thing that I found really interesting when I was preparing this class is that the Neder Barakadosh reminds me immediately, Mashgiach, Hu Inyin this is the second issue, or the second criteria that was discussed previously. And one could even ask, why does uh, the Neder Barakadosh have to point it out? Is it not obvious? You just have to just, you know, turn back a couple of pages and look. Well, the thing is this. When Rabbeinu Bechaya delineates the second criteria necessary for the fostering of trust or placing of trust, he doesn't speak about the fact that this trusted provider, proverbially speaking, would be supervising everything you do, but rather, he says, you would have to know, no mit'alem, Mimenu, that he doesn't choose to ignore you. So it's not that he's always supervising you, but rather that he is never choosing to ignore you. Because a person who ignores you, how could you trust them? They promised A, B, C, and D, but then they were ignoring you. Come on, does it never happen to you that you had a friend who you trusted? You suddenly text messaging and leaving, leaving uh, you know, all kinds of uh, 
their messages on, on all mediums today. You have like a six platforms you're on and they're not, they're not answering you and they're ignoring you and you get really frustrated. I, like this is a person I trust. And then like you find that a day later that they were in the ER and they had all kinds of challenges and problems or there was some emergency that came up and you say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have judged you. <laughs> really, we should never judge anybody because, because it's a foolish thing to do. The judgments that we make are based on our perspective and our limited awareness or knowledge of circumstances. Now, you can judge somebody favorably or judge somebody in a negative fashion, cast them in a harsh light of what we will call criticism. So you're saying, hey, if I'm important, why is she ignoring me? Why is he not answering me? Well, how are you supposed to know that they were just rear-ended or that their phone just died? Or even worse, they're preoccupied with some really life-threatening emergency and it's not capable of even responding or looking at messages that they're receiving. Of course, the charitable way to say is, ah, I'm, I'm sure they care about me. They just didn't notice. They're preoccupied with something that got more important. But what if this is really important to you? What if you really need their attention? Do you have any guarantee they'll always be there for you? The truth is, there are no guarantees. And something more important might always come along. Yet, Rabbeinu Bechaya says, it's acceptable for somebody to ignore me when they're preoccupied with something else, but they're not choosing to ignore me. The fact that they're ignoring me is because they're not capable of diverting their attention to me right now. So I'd have to know if I'm going to trust somebody that they don't ignore me. <laughs> Being involved in an, an accident is not called, why did you ignore me? I didn't. Well, why don't you respond? I couldn't. Oh, okay. So really you are my trusted friend. You were just unable to respond and I judged you based on my lack of knowledge. Now I'll remind you that we talked about this. In chapter 2, when Rabbeinu B'chaya begins to delineate the criteria necessary for being able to place trust in somebody, the things you would look for, the, the qualities you'd seek for your trusted provider, you need to know that they care about you. And caring about you, he says, it's not enough. They might, they might care about you, but they still might choose to ignore you sometimes. So I need to know they're not going to ignore me. And then he adds the words, Velo mit so he's not going to get like, you know, busy. Not with something that's really that important, but they decided to get busy. I was busy. But what were you busy with? What's at your business? I was busy. I, got, I, was, I was involved in something else. But the person you really trust... They need to be there for you. Now, this is a better person. And, and people have their limitations. And all of us, or all of us, would understand if our most trusted friend, our spouse, whatever it is, wasn't able to respond. And Rabbeinu B'chai says, so who, who do you think is most attentive? Who do you think is going to be following through, responding at all times, and he proves it from various scripture. Now, in the third chapter of Shara Betochen, he is laying out the case, he's making the case, on an emotional level really, why you should believe and trust, not only believe, but trust in Hashem. So he says, not what you need to be sure isn't happening, but in fact, God never gets preoccupied. 
Well, unless you would choose to. Because preoccupation is not a divine characteristic. Preoccupation means you only have so much room on your hard drive. You only have so much wherewithal available to you, and sometimes you simply can't. You're overwhelmed. But God can't be overwhelmed. The notion God can't is simply wrong-headed. <laughs> if your God can't, it's time to find a new God. There is no reason for you to worship an entity that can't or that's unwilling. So God is matter-of-factly, says Rabbeinu B'chayah, this is not identical to the qualities that were enumerated before, at least not in the manner in which they were articulated. So the Neder Bakredish says, well, this really, it is following on the heels of the second criteria, the criteria of he doesn't ignore, he doesn't get preoccupied, he doesn't get overwhelmed. But here in chapter 3, Rabbeinu Bachaya tells you, matter-of-factly, who mashgiach? He supervises. He's watching. He's engaged. He's involved. In the lives of all people. So that's the first thing. The first thing you need to know or contemplate is that now, this God that we believe in is an omnipotent God who chooses to be involved with all of us intimately. And what if I misbehave? So what if I spurn the Creator's overtures? What if I'm, what if I'm not deserving anymore, right? Suppose I no longer have earned God's favor. So Rabbeinu B'chai continues and he says, not only is it a matter of faith fact that God is always engaged and involved, but furthermore, lo yanichem, he doesn't set him aside. You know, the word yanich means to, to put down. So sometimes you can pick something up, you put it down. This is true on a literal level. It's also true figuratively. You can pick up a cause and set it aside. You can pick up a friend and then set them aside. Just because we picked something up doesn't mean we won't put it down. In fact, the easier it is to pick something up, the easier it is sometimes to set it down, let it go. This is non-literal. So Hashem not only has embraced us engage with us. Not only does He care for us, but furthermore, now we're adding He doesn't set us aside. He doesn't, so to speak, put us down. Interestingly, He translates it as a, He doesn't forsake. I don't think the word Yanichim means forsake. Ya'azov. La'azov means to forsake or to abandon. Yanichim means to put Him down. V'loyosalem. Not only does he not set us aside, but he doesn't, and this is probably a, a proper translation, he doesn't ignore. So the word mitalem comes from the Hebrew of helem, which means concealment. <laughs> you hear the expression, hear no evil, see no evil. I didn't notice anything. I didn't see it. 
well, you, it's called willful blindness. You didn't want to see it. Let me make a little confession. There are some times when I see things and I'm willfully blind. Because really it's in my purview to say something about it. I'd have to, I have to like kind of protest, hey, this is not appropriate. Of course, if I didn't see it, hey, what are you going to do? Some, sometimes it's, it's the right thing to do, I think. <laughs> it's an interesting story. The person with whom the story is happening might even be watching now, or might choose to watch at a later time. And he'll never know who it was. I won't even tell you. I won't give you any hint. I'll just say, many, many years ago, I'm walking down the aisles of the shul. It's Yom Kippur. And I see a person texting. This is before the days of WhatsApp. They're, you know, the old-fashioned Nokia phones. They're texting on Yom Kippur. So what am I supposed to do? I'm like a, hey, I'm, I'm, like, a, I'm like a rabbi. Like a, and she was texting on Yom Kippur. I quickly diverted my attention. I didn't see. I didn't notice. I didn't notice. And then I didn't notice. I didn't say a word. I just I, I immediately found something else to focus my attention on, and I don't know what happened. I don't I don't know if the person realized I was in eye shot, or I don't know why they're more afraid of a rabbi than God. But whatever. The, the bottom line is this: I would have had to say something, and if I would have to say something, it's very difficult for me to imagine that it would have been received in a positive way. It's not okay for a rabbi to see somebody texting Yom Kippur and say, no, that's okay, you can text all you want. Just don't expect me to respond. No, that's, that's not okay, that's not cool. You have to say, that it's Yom Kippur, you're not supposed to do that, unless you didn't see. So I didn't see. And in the end, this person has become quite observant. And I sometimes think back to that split-second decision. What if, I, what if I had to say something? What if I had formally noticed would the same things have happened? Would things have gone as positively? Of course, I don't know the answer to that question. And when the circumstances present themselves, there is no choice, there is no choice. But when there's a choice to choose not to see it, well, that might be the right choice to make. The point I'm trying to make with this whole little uh, sidebar is, velo mehem means not when somebody doesn't see something. It's a given that God sees everything. Or it should be. What's not a given is that God cares to see it. Maybe God's ignoring us. How often have people lamented to me that they've prayed and God's ignoring them? So why should they pray? God doesn't care. He's turning a deaf ear. Certainly it seems that way from our very narrow, limited perspective. So Rabbeinu Bechaya tells you, this is, is our faith factoids, obviously. I can't prove them to you, but this is what we Jewish people believe in. I'm not here to convince you to believe in God. I'm here to make the case for you to trust in God. So if you believe in these things, I, I know I do, we do it as total Jews. So if I believe in this, why am I putting my trust in God? I have seen people get anxious over a variety of different things, some of them very real. And I said to them, you know, put your trust in Hashem, have more betachan. And I, don't you believe A, B, C, and D? And they'll say, yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, I believe that, but. <laughs> What's but? But is, it's a nice theory. It's a nice theory. But it doesn't pan out in real life. You know, the story is told in, the, in late 1949, the Rebbe, our Rebbe, enters the Friedrich Rebbe study. And he sees the previous Rebbe with a very pensive look on his face. And he's like staring at the window. It's 1949. And after a long silence, the Friedrich Rebbe turns around to our Rebbe. And he says to the Rebbe, as a tracht von Eretz Yisrael, he's uh, entertaining the idea of making Aliyah, moving to Israel. So the Rebbe says, what will happen to the work of trying to battle assimilation in North America, which at the time was at a, really a fever pitch. I mean, like in, in, the, in the early 40s, but he was predicting the demise of Torah Judaism, the end of the old way of life. And the Friedrich Rebbe kind of shakes his head and he says, Yo, Asheinu Machshava. It's, it's, a nice, it's a nice thought. It's a nice thought. And he went back to work, as they say. The Rebbe spoke about this after the passing of the Friedrich Rebbe, and he said that the Rebbe, the Machshava, in his mind, he was already in Eretz Yisrael. He, he was already not in the Israel of today. He was already in the future. He was already living in the reality of a world redeemed and made whole, uh, the, world of, the realm of Mashiach, the reality of Mashiach. So, you know, a person says, It's a very nice thought. Thank you, Rabbi. Yes, I believe in all these things. Yeah, what do you do practically? Oh, practically, I'm going to be consumed with anxiety and worry until uh, such and such promises me that they will be there for me. Until the doctor tells me they have an 80% chance of recovery. And until this wealthy person says, Don't worry, I got you covered. Your job is guaranteed. Oh, now I'm at peace. I'm at peace because, because the doctor said that he guarantees that I'm going to make a recovery. How can he guarantee anything? Who says you're not the 1%? Who says you're the 99%? <laughs> As I mentioned to you many times, you know, statistically speaking, every time you throw the coin in the air, it's always going to be 50. 50% heads, 50% tails. Each time you throw it, it isn't influenced by what happened prior or subsequent. So actu actuarial science is actually a misnomer, but it's still, it's called that, and I guess on some level it works. Although it's not an absolute science, of course. It's all conjecturing based on, on something which isn't accurate, interestingly. So at any rate, the, 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 the real challenge for us is not only to believe this, but to identify with it. That the belief that we have, that which we know to be true on some atmospheric level, that we can actually live with this. That it can inhibit and, in fact, roll back our anxiety entirely. So a Yid has to know, has to believe Hashem doesn't ignore us. Even when it seems He is. He never, he's never willfully blind. That's the meaning of V'lo Yis'alim. V'lo Yis'alim, He isn't making as if he does not hear or isn't involved, even if it seems that way to us. He hasn't looked the other way. And there is absolutely nothing which is actually concealed from him. 
So not only does he not divert his attention from us, but in truth, none of our needs are ever hidden from him. Like Yisasa Dover Mehem, it's a, it's a very interesting statement. Dover, which, which Dover is this? When we say Le Dover, nothing will be hidden from him. No thing is hidden from him. So the commentaries talk about this uh, business of Le Dover, and they say that it refers to our needs, to our things. That is to say, of course God knows everything that's happening. He's supervising everything that's happening. But how about something that I decided in my mind that I need? How about a concern I have? Is God in tune to my thoughts, to the meditations of my mind or my heart? And the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> that's funny. I talk to people about belief sometimes. And, and they'll mock observance. What, why does God care? And yet, they're a thousand percent certain that God very much cares if I'm kind to somebody. And if I put a smile on somebody's face. So I'm like, let me understand this. So you believe that putting a good feeling in, in the heart of a special needs child is very valuable and important to God. That he knows what's in the heart of each person. And if I say something that hurts or offends, it's actually offensive and hurtful to God. You believe that. But you don't believe that God knows what your needs are? You don't believe that God knows what your thoughts and your worries and your concerns are? Really now. So we believe He does. He doesn't ignore us. He isn't unaware of the things that we ourselves are afraid to even articulate. The innermost thought, even our subconsciousness, God's aware of it. And this is true from the smallest to the biggest. Now, what does this mean from the smallest to the biggest? Like, are we talking about an objective small to big here? The Paslechem suggests that no. This is Dovrkotten Shalahem, something that. You yourself don't really attach that much importance to you. It's, it's irrelevant. It's, you know, something you thought of. But it's not terribly important to you. It's a minor thing. If you have to choose between one area or the other, this is not going to make it to your top ten list. It's in the small things. Hashem is aware. Hashem is aware of all these things. So God does not forget, so to speak, one matter by virtue of another. What does this mean? God doesn't forget. How could he forget? Why would you talk about forgetfulness vis-a-vis God? Talk about hunger? Talk about loneliness? Does God get cold? Does he need a pedicure? (laughs) How would he forget? So the Paslechem beautifully explains this. He says, It's a bus of Adam with regard to a person. You talk and it's possible. Shatir does davar echod That one occupation, one focus, displaces another. So there's only that much room in your head or your heart 
and you became so fixated on another, it doesn't mean the first wasn't important. It's just that you had to choose what to focus on. And this was a small thing. So one was displaced by the other. It's true for human beings. Because people are limited in their scope of possibility. And that's why this is precisely what to expect. I know this person cares about me. I know I'm important to them. But something else even more important came along. Really more important. I agree it was more important. But for Hashem, there is nothing of greatest importance that displaces something small because God doesn't have that limitation. The only reason we overrode the small thing to take care of the big thing is because, hey, this is, this is the cards I was dealt. This is, this is the amount of my wherewithal. This is the glass ceiling of my ability. But God doesn't have those limitations. So everything we've said here is a good reason for us to place our trust in Hashem. And so we should. Now, I want to go back to, I want to revisit now what we've just read in a little bit of a, a deeper fashion. I want to start off from the idea of because he is engaged with or supervising actively the ways of all people. So what does that mean, the ways of all people? And what about other things? Did we not speak about this idea that God is involved with everything? In the previous episode, we talked about the butterfly theory, how all this is interlocking. So how does that work? This is, a, in truth, a much, much larger discussion than than the issue at hand. The issue at hand is, is, is what we need to talk about for trust, and we're kind of crossing over into, into another orbit, and this is the issue of how do we define Hashgacha Pratis? How do we define this idea that God is engaged with everything, and that everything that unfolds is by divine design? And to be short, in in tomorrow's episode, the next episode, we'll discuss this in greater detail where we talk about mission control. We'll talk about how everything is part of the grander mission. So it's interesting that Hashgacha Paratis, that the idea of individual divine providence is very much linked to this, this idea of trust and this ability for us to nurture trust. They're not mutually exclusive for obvious reasons. The only way I can trust in God is if I know that God is able to do as I wish for Him to do so I can place my trust in Him. I have to know that God actually cares, is engaged, sees, knows. I need to know, I need to kind of <laughs> know these things on a faith level so that they can filter down into a heartfelt sense of trust. So it would be, let's just say unfair of me not to say that with regard to Hashgacha Pratis, there, there are many, many different ideas, Torah ideas, which are talked about by the sages 
who lived in the medieval times, who we call the Rishonim. And the Rambam in Mor Nevuchim is pretty explicit in dividing the attention that God gives to humanity and the attention that God gives to, say, vegetation or the animal world. It's not the same kind of engagement, he says. And Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar almost kind of, you know, acknowledges this. I mean, he, this is written before Maronavuchim and almost a century before the Rambam wrote his works. But this was an accepted concept that the Rishonim, many Rishonim believed, that the idea of Ashgachapratus was different for people than it was for, say, animals or vegetation or the mineral world. And then the Balshemtev's idea that Ashkach Pratas is uh, all-encompassing. So, so how would the Balshemtev uh, study this Shara Betochem? What, what would he say about this idea of Mashgiach Alan Hagas Bnei Odom Kulam? Let me share with you an excerpt from a mimer of the Friedrich Rebbe. Maimer of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, which describes in detail how the Baal Shem Tev viewed the happenings, you know, what goes on in our world. So it's a Maimer that was delivered by the Friedrich Rebbe on, on Shabbat of Parshat Yisro. And the year is, the year is 1934, it's the winter of 1934. And, and he's talking about uh, he's talking about God listening to us. Like, hey God, are you listening to me? Can you, can you please listen? So the Friedrich Rebbe, and this is printed for those who want to take a look inside themselves in Sefer HaMemorim Kuntresim, the coll- a collection of Memorim, booklets of Memorim, it's uh, volume two. The Friedrich Rebbe essentially bases this rumination on a verse which is found in the book of Tehillim, where David HaMelech, King David, says in the opening verses of Hallel, Hamakbihi l'shoves, that God proverbially dwells or sits in the highest realms, Hamashpili, but who lowers himself, Liris Bashamayim Uvaretz. And that the nations of the world think Hashem is beyond all of this, but no, the Jewish people believe that Hashem is not beyond all the ordinary reality, but in fact, he's engaged. Hamagbi Lishavis, said the Rebbe, is God dwells in the highest realms. Nothing is on the same scale of God and divinity. God is not the same as anything, only in greater sum of. It's a different, it's a different reality, a reality that we can't fathom. And nonetheless, the greatness of Hashem, the unfathomable greatness of the Creator, is that that He is engaged in heavenly matters, in the loftiest of realms, as well as the most ordinary earthy or pedestrian everyday realities. 
שמשגיח בהשגחה פרוטס על כל אחד ואחד מהנברואים, that God in his individual providence is supervising each and every one of his creators, everything that he formed, even even the lowest level, the lowest level of life or inanimate life. The Loimi boy says that it goes without saying that when we talk about Briyase, the bringing of existence, the quantum physics of existence, or Yitzirase, the specific formation of how that quantum physics arranges itself, that all of this comes from God. But it goes further. It talks about even the way these things continue to be animated. Whether we talk about gnats or mosquitoes, but the tiniest bugs, but the growth of a leaf on one of billions or trillions of trees, a blade of grass, or it's being cut, that all of this is Bahashgacha Pratis. And he says it's not, it's more than that. But furthermore, not only did the blade of grass grow by divine design, Hashem was involved in, in this life. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of a divine life force. Or it's being truncated from its life force, the, the grass, the blade being cut, the branch being ripped off. But furthermore, the blowing in the wind of a leaf. One solitary leaf. Or the movement of a worm in the desert. Or the communication, if you will, of animals amongst themselves. Whatever primitive form of communication animals engage in. Or the fish of the sea. Until the tiniest of creatures living in the lowest Oceans. All of this is by divine design. Hashem is intimately aware of every single one of the things we talked about and everything else in between. God is engaged individually in a providence that encompasses and engages and involves every detail of all these creatures. And he goes on to describe this in some length. And then a little uh, later on on page 279, he picks it up. He says, this is what we learned from Meireinu HaBal Shem Tev, This is what our teacher, the Bal Shem Tev taught us. All of the creatures of the realm of the inanimate mineral world, the vegetative world that can grow in a tethered way, the world that is free, free life, untethered, unfettered life of the animal world. And finally, the world of humanity. Each one in accordance to his level. That's an important word. <laughs> Let's make a mental note of these, these two words. According to its level. We'll come back to this in a minute. The Friedrich Gerber writes further, Hashem arranges a whole series of cause and effect. 
so that something should happen for some creature in some way at some time precisely and everything is by divine design everything and he gives just like very literal description he says suppose it's this beautiful sunny day a cloudless day the sun is beating down and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it would seem, a wind rustles through the leaves. And some leaves blow off. And maybe along with that wind, a couple of blades of grass or a few pieces of straw are truncated or dislodged. And maybe some straw on the ground blows or moves a bit. And then a few moments later, the wind settles down and there's no more wind. Everything is still again. You must know that there was an intention of this wind that blew and it came from Hashem so that these leaves should be blown off this tree at this time, landing where they do, blown in some kind of formation and then where it settles is exactly where Hashem ordained for it to be. Something that blow off the roof, he says. You know, just like a, a piece of straw that blows off the top of the barn. All of this is by divine decree. This is like a mind-boggling thought. It's actually, it's impossible for the human mind to conceive of this. And it frankly makes no sense, no logical sense. It's in the realm of faith. So what Maimonides agree with what the Friedrich Rebbe writes here in the name of the Baal Shem Tev, or articulating the Shita of the Baal Shem Tev. So this is dealt with in a number of places, but I'm going to share with you some of the words that were penned by the second Rebbe of the Chabad Labavich dynasty of the Rabbi Dovber, the Mittler Rebbe, the eldest son of the Alter Rebbe. He says that you have to know that broadly speaking, when we refer to divine design, there are different levels of individual providence. One is one is what we would call more superficial, which means that it comes but in a backhanded fashion. This is represented by the divine name Elohim, which means judgment, to whom is ascribed the idea of concealment. And that means that God will conceal his involvement by virtue of multiple intermediaries, which doesn't mean that the intermediary have minds or hearts of their own, but rather they are, he says, like the hatchet. In the hands of the woodchopper. You don't blame the hatchet for felling the tree. You don't give the hatchet credit. You could say, I had a good axe. But who gets credit? <laughs> the woodchopper gets the credit. And it is the woodchopper, he or she, who actually fells the tree or divides the wood. And he says, what happens is, that Hashem conceals himself through many, and this is a euphemism, a metaphor, levushim, through many garments, 
Now, here's a simple example. Suppose you want to share something, an idea, a suggestion. You want something done a certain way. But you know your crowd, or you know the individual who you're trying to get the message to, and you know if it comes from you, they won't listen. So what are you going to do? If you're, if you're intuitive, if you're smart about it, you'll find a way to deliver the message. Who delivered the message? You delivered the message. How'd you deliver it? Well, you found a way. You might even have done it in a manner which is impossible for that person to trace. In the end, the message was from you, but not overtly. And then there's a person you care for deeply. You'll love this person. They love you. You know that the very fact that the message will come from you directly is most meaningful. In fact, they might even be offended if that message was delivered to them by virtue of intermediaries, even if the intermediaries are totally unaware of the message that they are delivering. So you'd say, like, you couldn't tell me? Aren't we friends? We don't have a relationship? You had to tell so-and-so, such-and-such, so that eventually a backhanded message gets back to me. You say, well, I wanted you to get the message. You got the message. You say, yeah, but, like, couldn't you tell me directly? In both instances, you're conveying the message. In fact, it is eminently conceivable that you will control the timing of the message. It's just not a message from you, but a message that was delivered. Hashem is always in control. Hashem's providence is ever the case. The question is do we have the privilege of seeing Hashem's hand? Or is it so backhanded that a person views this as this is not a miracle? This is nature. It's reality. I can tell you A, B, C, D. I can trace the whole slew of dominoes. I know exactly where this all began. And you miss the most important part of it. That not only did Hashem put it in the mind of the original domino, but that each domino was being choreographed by Hashem. Sometimes we're a guided missile. We may never know that we even delivered the message. But Hashem sent the message to us. And sometimes we see the Yad Hashem in an open way. And the Mitla Rebbe develops this idea very richly as per his syntax. goes into a lot of details over here. And he says, this is the difference between Ein Hashem al of God's direct eye are upon those who revere Him. And he says, when it comes to the animal world or it comes to vegetation. Of course, everything's coming from Hashem, but it isn't directly, you don't feel it's directly from God. God is using a very sophisticated series of levers and pulleys on a spiritual level, which eventually lead to the same result, but they don't have that overt, open relationship with God. Rather, maybe only realizing one level up. 
you know, in the, some of these spy organizations, the people who are involved in doing specific things only know their piece of the action. And as I understand it, the reason is in case their cover gets blown or in case they're a double agent, which you never even really know, they only know what they know. They only know what they need to know. They don't know any more than that. Which is ideally what the spy on the ground should, should endeavor to achieve. What he or she is supposed to. You're supposed to follow orders. You don't have to know the rhyme and reason behind it. You don't have to be able to unravel the whole story. That's not your job. It won't help you do your job better. Focus on the mission you were given. And the next level in the chain of command might only know what it received. There's somebody or some group of people who have the whole picture stitched together. In fact, they're choreographing everything. It goes without saying that there's a world of difference between somebody uh, uh, on the ground, so to speak, who's engaged or involved in doing something because they received the command. And there's a whole chain of command. And imagine that person on the ground would suddenly get a call from the king himself, the president, the prime minister himself. He says, you're like involved in, in this? He says, of course I'm involved. The general is the architect of everything that's going on on the, on the field. They're watching everything. You know my name? Like, you care about me? And the general's like, yeah. Why? Well, because I, unbeknownst to you, you're my nephew. I, I don't know. You see, it's about relationship. And the more cherished, the more beloved, the more space you occupy in that high level of command, the more important you feel, and the more you're motivated. This is really how we have to view our relationship with God vis-a-vis the animal world and the world of vegetation. There is a difference. Of course there's a difference. To save a human life is to save the whole world. To, To save an animal who's suffering is a compassionate thing to do. It's a nice thing to do. And it's also okay to eat the animal if it's kosher and you kill it painlessly and don't cause it to suffer unnecessarily because God says so. And sure, there's a hashgacha pratis, there's a divine design in all this, but there, there isn't that same closeness of a relationship. But God craves relationship with us. And no, of course, it doesn't make sense. And therefore, science or technology will never lead you to that conclusion. How could they? It's not logical. But it's very much, if you will, believable. This is the essence of religion. It's a system through which we are able to nurture and experience a profound connection, a loving relationship with the creator of the universe himself. That's the meaning of Ashgach Pratis. The Mithla Rebbe goes on to say, By virtue of this approach, namely, many levels, not of what's actually happening, but how it's happening, the quality of that engagement, 
is why Maimonides makes a distinction between the Hashgacha Ho'elikis, the divine providence that the Rambam talks about on Min Ha'adam, that he says is not applicable to Doimim Tzumei Medaber, because the Rambam is not talking from a perspective of God's involvement with everything that's happening, that everything is by divine design. The Rambam is addressing the idea of relationship. It's interestingly more about our connection to Hashem rather than God's control of the universe. And that's the essence of the message that Rabbeinu Bechaya is conveying to us here because this is not about the philosophy of our faith. This is not about the idea of what we believe in per se, that God is the one who, who is engaged with everything. But here we're talking about I should trust in Hashem. Rabbeinu Bechaya is not trying to convince the, the, the chimpanzees, the penguins, to trust in Hashem. He's trying to convince you and me to trust in Hashem. He says, you have to know that that Rabbeinu Shalom is involved and engaged with all of creation, but specifically here, God cares about your behavior. God cares if you're anxious or if you put your trust in Him. Let me say that again, because this is actually the crux of the matter. God cares if you put your trust in Him. And as we've explained multiple times already, the very fact that you could choose to find the spiritual courage, stamina, and strength to place your trust in God in an unreserved fashion, which means that you have no anxiety, no worries, and you can live with a sense of surety and certainty, that is so meaningful to God that it becomes the vehicle through which you can achieve the realization of that very quest, of the thing that you seek. In other words, it's so important to Hashem that you have betochen, that the having, the expressing, the feeling, the living with betochen, with trust in Hashem in and of itself, brings those blessings. That becomes the, the Adobe software to open the PDF, so to speak, to download the picture in real time. So it's not just rich text or Java text, but it's actually something that can be seen in full color, in sharp contrast. Wouldn't that be nice? So I know God has a program. I know God has something in mind. I know in the end it'll be for my best, but I'm going to trust the Hashem that it's going to be for the best in a way I can see. And the software that opens that in a way I can see is the betachen. How else should Rabbeinu B'chayim make the case for you to trust in Hashem? By telling you He doesn't ignore you? By telling you He doesn't choose willfully to look the other way? The first thing you need to know is that Humashgiach. And the point here is not that He doesn't involve Himself with everything else. But rather that He is entirely engaged in how you behave. And your trust, your feelings towards Hashem, therefore make a world of difference. Here in the Kihat edition, he quotes from the Hayom Yom of the 28th day of Cheshvan. And you can read along together with me. I'll, I'll read it from inside. The quote from Hayom Yom is, A person should ponder. If the movement of a blade of grass 
is prompted by divine providence. And furthermore, that fulfills the intent of creation. How much more so concerning the human species in general? And Yisrael, Am the Jewish people who are so close to Hashem. So pondering this will do what for you? It's going to get you to behave the way Hashem wants you to behave. And here, for our purposes, it should bring you to be able to trust Hashem. The, the, the subject of Hashgacha Pratis is a very, very nuanced, very profound, very deep concepts, very, 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 very foundational. There's actually a manuscript that the Rebbe authored in the early 40s. It's printed, at least the first time it was printed, is in the eighth volume of Lakuta Sichas, of the Rebbe's collected, edited talks in the Hosafot, in the editions in the back. If you want to look and study more about this, and of course I strongly encourage you to, it's on page 277. I don't know if this has been translated into English yet, but the Rebbe speaks about the uniqueness of the Shita, the opinion of the Baal Shem Tev. And the Rebbe says, in addition to this Mimer of Hasidus that I shared with you from 1934, the Rebbe says in 1936, the Friedrich Rebbe adds a very, very important nuance. He says this idea of divine design, of individual providence that the Baal Shem Tev developed, articulated, if you will, and explained fully, that each movement of all creation is by divine design, not coincidental, accidental, incidental, and so on and so forth. But furthermore, the Oidzeis, in 1936, the Friedrich Rebbe makes the point in even stronger contrast. He says, the Tenua Prati is the Nivra Prati, that the specific movement of a specific creature, not only is it by divine design, but it contributes to the ultimate destiny of creation itself. I mean, the, the staggering impact of this statement cannot be overemphasized. It's, it's literally mind-blowing. There are trillions, octillions, I don't even know how you number these things anymore, what the, what the right number to call it is, of details, tiny details, twitches, movements, going on right now in the world every single second. And they're all interrelated. They all have influence in one way, shape, or form as per this idea which we talked about in the previous episode of the butterfly theory. A clap of thunder in Ontario is the result of, uh, uh, with many other millions of things, the flapping of a butterfly in the, in the South China Sea. So every movement infects everything. And here, the Bashantiv says that a Yid believes, should believe, that not only every movement is, is meaningful on some level, but that the way all these movements affect each other, all of this is choreographed and relevant for the ultimate purpose of the fulfillment of the divine intention of creation, which of course is a healed and perfected world, the coming of Mashiach. I mean, it's, it's actually a mind-boggling thing. <laughs> you need to think about it 
to realize how unthinkable or how unfathomable this is and then to let the impact sink in. You know, in today's Hayom Yom, the Rebbe relates an, an incredible teaching from just looking at some of your questions. How do we hear God when we need His help in decision-making? It's a very good question, Lara. It's a very good question. So let me finish this point, and I'm going to, I'm going to respond to that question. So the, the first, the first uh, point that I want to make is that uh, Alter Rebbe once gave this teaching that Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, our Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He says, Shema Yisrael. Shema is Su Marom Enechem. It's an acronym for raise your eyes on high. It doesn't say raise your eyes to heaven, which obviously is a euphemism, but still it could say, you know, God in heaven, raise your eyes to heaven. It says, Su'umarom, raise your eyes on high. So what is high? High is a relative term. <laughs> Some people are scared of heights. They're, they're, they, they can't look down if they're 10 feet up. Some people can be 10 stories up and be calm. And some people can jump out of a, a moving airplane and at some point engage their parachute, hopefully, so they... They make it down safely. Uh, but at what point do we say, wow, that's, that's high? It's a, it's a relative term. It's a relative term. So whether it's a high-flying plane. No, it's a very low-flying plane, actually. It's high for you on the ground. That looks high. But it's actually, vis-a-vis aviation, not high at all. So it says, Su'umar, raise your eyes on high. On high is a relative term. And this is what the Alter Rebbe said. He said, you have to raise your eyes. This refers to the metaphorical idea of seeing in your mind's eye. So you have to raise your eyes high, higher than what you can understand. And the rest of the verse continues, and you should see. So you raise your eyes to what can't be seen in order to see me, Bara'ela, who created all of this. And, and the idea essentially is that we have to focus on and try with our minds to apprehend that which is by definition unapprehendable and to apprehend that intelligently. And in doing so, to have a deeper appreciation of and a profounder understanding of that which cannot be understood. I'll give you a, a simple example from quantum physics. So the Heisenberg principle of uncertainty is that when something is in motion, it's impossible to know where the nuclei is because of the nature of velocity and the nucle- nuclei is always in motion. And because of this, he essentially disproves the Newtonian concept of predeterminism. He says you cannot have something which is predetermined. You cannot predict because, in fact, there's the principle of uncertainty. So you never know how something is going to land or where precisely it will land because we have this principle of uncertainty. So imagine you had two people and somebody said, well, I'm going I'm to throw this and at this point... You know, how, where will the nuclei be or how will it land at this point? And a person will say, I don't know. I don't know. It's okay, you don't know. I don't know either. Nobody knows. And then a scientist will say, well, we've taken into account the, the uh, velocity and we've taken into account the distance and we've taken into account the, the, the traction or the movement of the air at this particular... And we, can, and, we, and we can have a very, very, very specific information and with all the specific information we could have a highly accurate guesstimate but we can never be 100% sure. So both people will say I don't know. 
Now, I ask you, can you compare the first I don't know to the second I don't know? The first is a, a scientific statement, a highly educated and intelligent view. The second is, I don't know. So the Alta Rebbe said, when it comes to these spiritual truths, yes, there's this principle of uncertainty, there's a level that we can't detect. Incidentally, Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty isn't really uncertain. It's just that in, a, in the present methodologies that we have to measure quantum physics, it's impossible to know where the nuclei is, and as such, you can't predict what if you could. And breaking research is starting to touch upon this, that actually maybe you could. <laughs> they have scientists are proposing theories now, and new theories, new quantum theories, that actually they're thinking they're getting very close to predicting this kind of thing. No. So, so if that would happen, maybe then the prince, Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty will become certain again. And then all of a sudden, Newton comes back to life. I, I don't know. But here's the point. There is certainly arenas, parts of our faith, which are impossible for us to understand. Like, it's a, you and I can't compute, can't fathom how everything should be interlocking at the same time over millennia. And that all of it leads to a precise moment when Mashiach comes. It's impossible to fathom it. But to discuss it and to contemplate it and to think about it, to understand what can't be understood, and then to have this filter through into our minds, first cerebrally and intelligently, to the point that it begins to resonate in our emotional quotients, in our, in our, it, it becomes something we understand in our heart. Now that, my friends, is how we build Betachem. So, so the, the question is, um, you know, how do we hear God when we need his help in decision-making? It's a very good question. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very practical question. So here's the thing. So many people have said to me, you know, if I would live in antiquity when God was talking to people, so then I would, uh, I would have uh, perfect security and safety and confidence. I make the right choices and do everything Hashem says. And it's actually not true. And, and we see it in vivid color in the story of the first Jews, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are, are faced with a very strange set of circumstances. God communicates to Abraham directly and he says, I want you to leave. You, you go. Where are we going? I'm not telling you right now, but I'll, I'll tell you. Lech lecha, first you go. <laughs> Transcend yourself. Leave your orbit of comfort. You'll go to the place Asherah Well, finally God does tell Abraham and Sarah where to go and the destination to punch into the GPS eventually gets given to him. He gets an address. He gets the coordinates. Canaan. The land people are calling Canaan now. Okay. Comes to Canaan and Avram doesn't know where to go in Canaan. So he's going from place to place. He's actually walking through the land in every place where Avram and Sarah step, they proverbially acquire for their future progeny. Every inch of Israel was walked on by Avram and Sarah at some point during the course of their sojourns. So they're going here and going there and they're settling there. They're actually making the first impressions for the future indelible settlements of the Jewish people in their eternal homeland, which nobody can ever erase. And, and then a funny thing happens. After being there for a short amount of time, all of a sudden there's a, a drought and there's economic collapse. And guess who they blame? So it must be these strangers, these weirdos who are like walking through the land because everywhere they go, they seem to be casting some kind of curse, some kind of cloud, like everything's going wrong. 
And according to some opinions, Avram and Sarah don't only leave the land of Canaan because they're starving, they're afraid they won't be able to provide for themselves in the household, but actually their lives are in danger. There's an animosity, an ire that has been stirred by the local populace to the point that they're not unlike the Jews who suffered from blood libel centuries later. So what are you going to do? They have to literally run for their lives. Where do they go? They go to Egypt. And Abraham gets very concerned because Sarah's like, she's a big girl, you know. She's all grown up. She's like 16 or 60s, but she's like gorgeous. And like, this is a problem. This is a problem. The morality of this place is such that beautiful women like this are not safe. The only thing that would prevent them from being taken is the fact that they're married. But in this part of the world, those days, when it came to chastity and marriage, people respected those things, but you could easily, let's just say, unencumber a woman. You know, make her unmarried. By accident, of course. It was a the camel went crazy. We're very sorry for your loss, Sarah. By the way, can I have your number? <laughs> this is a real concern. So Abraham decides to say, it's my sister, which isn't entirely untrue. They're kind of our, you know, by stretch of imagination, a little bit of a sister. So there's a sister because they're... And, and Abraham says, they'll reward me because they'll try to curry my favor and I'll tell them your husband's somewhere else or, or, or you know, they wouldn't do it without my permission and we'll figure this out. Did he do the right thing? Nachmanudi says no. Ramban says this is a terrible thing he did. The many, many of the Mepharshim argue, how could Nachmanani say he did a bad thing? He does the same thing later. And Isaac does the same thing a generation later. This was survival. He did what he had to do. Tell me, was it clear for him? And really, I think that is the point. Was it clear? It wasn't clear. So what does a person do at any time? If God gave you precise directions at every time and at every moment, would you get any credit for doing the right thing? We have a system in place. It's called the Shulchan Aruch. It's called the Code of Jewish Law. The Mishnah says, Aseluch Arav. We have to consult Arav. Oftentimes, we won't like what Arav, what our spiritual mentor, or what a halachic decisor will tell us, but it's still the right thing to do. And you have to be ready to, and I quote, end quote, suffer the consequences. If I believe this is the right thing to do, based on Jew, what Jewish law tells me, based on what halacha tells me, then that's the proverbial iron bridge that doesn't, shake or sway like the rope bridge that's the answer that there, there is no better answer and life is fraught and there are often times when we are faced with difficult challenges and we're not sure of how to proceed and what to do and one has to do everything with the best of intentions and the focus has to be l'shem shomayim what will bring about the greatest kind of honor for heaven so to speak not what's good for me personally, what would Hashem want? And if you ask yourself that question on a regular basis and you ask somebody else those questions, somebody who you can trust to be honest with you and to give you an answer which is rooted and based on Torah ideas, then that's how Hashem speaks to us. But it's really, really not going to be obvious. Really not going to be easy. And that's why the stakes are so high here in this life that Hashem has given us. And that's what we've got to do the best we can do. But 
a key component, a critical foundational element in all of this is living with trust and not having anxiety and not being worried because I place my trust in Hashem who is engaged and involved with every tiny thought in a direct fashion. That's the point here. Direct, straightforward fashion. Everything that happens in the world is choreographed. But Hashem is looking at me now. As we say in the book of Tanya, and this is one of the 12 foundational passages that Ebba selected to embody the essential message of Yiddishkeit, Vehini Hashem Nitzav Allah Hashem is standing right over you. He is searching your heart and your mind, your innermost thoughts. Are you serving Hashem in the way you can, to the best of your ability? No two people are created alike. Hashem does not have equal expectation of any two people. Oh yes, we're all supposed to perform the 613 mitzvahs, so to speak, to the best of our ability. And the halacha is one size fits all. And yet, the level of intensity the level of passion, the level of certainty, the level of trust, the level of subservience and humility, this is unique for all of us. And Hashem is looking to see if you are being all you can be. Are you measuring up to the possible you, not are you outpacing your neighbors or peers or friends? So when a person thinks about all this, and he knows that Hashem is Le'anichem, never sets him aside. Lo'yisalem never looks the other way. And it's interesting, when we talk about this term, Lo'yisalem, the Paslechem says, if you take a look in the 22nd chapter of Deuteronomy, you'll find it opens with a mitzvah of returning a lost item. Somebody loses something, it's a mitzvah to return it. And this can be understood on multiple levels, incidentally. It's one of the ways the Gemara explains the activities that a doctor performs. Somebody asked me a couple of days ago at a shiva house. I didn't have time to fully respond. He said, I don't understand. He said, if God made somebody sick, who are we then to pray that God makes them healthy? <laughs> I said, who are we to bring him to the hospital or to the doctor? He said, what do you mean? You've you got to do that. I said, why? If Hashem wants them to be sick, who are we to heal them? The answer is, if somebody lost something, it's a mitzvah for you to restore the lost item. If somebody's sick, it's a privilege for you as a medical practitioner or as the person who takes them to the medical practitioner to help them find what they lost. What could be more important than one's health itself and life itself? So the beginning of Deuteronomy 22 talks about this idea of seeing the possessions of another person that are lost and you have responsibility towards him. And in verse 3, it finishes off with the words, Lo you cannot, so to speak, look the other way. You can't look the other way. So Rabbeinu Meyuchas, it's one of the important Rishonim, he says that this idea of Lo is in addition to the positive mitzvah of Hashev Teshivim, that you will surely return the lost item and make every effort to restore something to the original owner. In addition to this, he says, if you, for whatever reason, choose to look the other way or wait until there's no longer an obligation for you to return the item because the person has already given up and no longer retains ownership, so to speak, by hoping for its return. So then you would still violate a negative mitzvah because you've chosen to look the other way. 
like so what happens after so not only God is not going to set us aside he's going to keep doing for us but even if we do the worst of things to make God set us aside God still will not look the other way and nothing is hidden and here Rabbeinu Bechaya brings this forth with the force of prophecy and he quotes two verses two subsequent verses from the prophecies of Isaiah. And I, I find it so interesting that there are actually two back-to-back verses, and Isaiah quotes them, one subsequent to the next, but he, but the Beinu B'chaya, pardon me, quotes Yeshayo and Avi, he brings down the first Pasuk, and then he says, Omar, and he says, which is indicative of, there's something more. You read this, and that makes one statement, and then he goes even further. And then there's, there's verse 27, and then there's verse 28. So let's take a look. We can read this together from the, uh, the Gahat edition. Kameshikosov, as it says, Loma why would you say, Jacob? Vitadaber, why would you talk? Why would you say, Israel? Nistra Darki Mehashem, my way is hidden from God. And from my God, my judgment passes. So I mean, on, on a literal level, as is noted here, the prophet is reproaching the Jewish people for complaining that God doesn't supervise them, that God's not engaged in their life, and he doesn't mete out ju- judgment or justice to their enemies. I want to I take a look at the actual, the Pasuk inside, see, see what, uh, what the Mepharshim say here, because this is, uh, I found this very interesting. Nistra Darki, the Mitzudas David says, Helimenov. He was willfully blind. Why would we say that God is, has, has, his ways have been hidden? It doesn't mean his ways have been hidden. It's much more, Isaiah is saying. It's not why would you say ways have been hidden. Why would you say Hashem chose to ignore you? And I emphasize that Rabbeinu B'chaya pointed out, Lo v'lo He doesn't set them aside, nor does he ignore or look the other way, as if he didn't see. Why is it? Have him fun of mishpat hagmul. Why is it that he seems to pass over? Says the Mitzudas David, the rightful meeting out of justice. Why would we say that? So Rabbeinu David Kimchi the Radak says, Oimer Keneged Yisrael Shem Begolos. The prophet Isaiah is speaking in our voice. And he says, why would you say that? The length of Galut. The Jewish people have been exiled and dispersed now, driven out of the land of Israel for more than 1950 years. That's unbelievable that we would nurse any kind of hope or even anticipate that Mashiach is still going to come. And it looks like Hashem has decided to look the other way. Why would you say that, said Isaiah? What are we talking about here? We started off with the words, Rabbeinu B'chai's first words are, the Radak, when he comments on this verse, I don't know that he saw Rabbeinu B'chai, but he comments as, what are you saying over here? 
He's not supervising. He's not engaged. He's not involved. And here you are suffering in Galut. Why is Hashem, why is Hashem uh, seem to be ignoring us? The doc says this is the age-old question. As Jeremiah wept, and even King David wondered aloud, why is it that the ways of the wicked are successful? Why do they prosper? His judgment. Where is fairness? So Yeshayo and Avi says, why would you speak that way? Well, if he, if he asks, why would you speak that way? What does it tell you? It's obviously not true. Because if it's true, that's why we're speaking that way. Now, he knows why we speak this way. He knows we speak this way because that's how we feel. And this is precisely what the prophet is driving at. That's what he's reproaching us. Don't feel that. Stop feeling that way. But I do feel that way. Well, work on changing the way you feel. That's exactly the point of Shara Betochen. Change the way you feel. You feel anxious. You feel worried. You feel concerned. You're discombobulated with so many fears. Change the way you feel. How am I doing that? Well, you started with this. You're on the right path. We need to learn this and discuss it and then talk about it again and think about it and contemplate it. And eventually, you will start to feel differently. And then he goes on, and he says in the second verse, do you not know? Have you not heard? That Hashem Bode could say Sa'aretz? Have you not heard of Elikei Oilam of our eternal God, our everlasting God, who creates, so to speak, the ends of the earth? He doesn't get tired, he doesn't get weary. And there is no way for us to understand what God does. It is impossible to fathom. So since God is the creator, so to speak, of the ends of the earth, He knows everything that happens between the bookends, between the borders, between the orbits of existence as we know it terrestrially. And Hashem neither tires nor gets weary. In other words, there's nothing that distracts Him. So, well, He got tired of us already. Not so with God. Again, I want to go back into the way the Mepharshim put this, and then we'll look at the commentaries on Rabbeinu B'chaya himself. Mitzudah's David says something so interesting. What do you mean, hello, yadata? Don't you know this? If I know it, why was I feeling this way? Mitzudah's David says, Halo You are capable of spending the time contemplating this. Of course you knew it. On some level, you even believe it. But the belief doesn't affect the way you feel. That's a problem. As Rabbeinu Bechai II said in his Kabbalah Kemach, and I quoted this a number of times already in the different teachings on Shara Betochen, Loi kol hamaymin beteach. Not everybody who believes has trust in Hashem. Avo kol beteach maimin. But if you're a tr- one who trusts in Hashem, you certainly believe. The point then is this. You believe it. 
as we keep talking about the Gemara's illustration of faith gone foul, when a person is actually breaking in to steal, and in the midst of his efforts for his illegal heist, he's praying to God to be saved, or even worse, for success. Ganva, apumachtarta, says the Gemara Rachmanakarya. No atheist, no foxholes. The thief is borrowing his way underneath the safe to be able to steal, and he's praying to God for success. What are you praying for? If you believe that God could provide for you, so then why would you steal? Why would you violate God's word? That makes no sense. If you believe that God can save you, then you should believe God can give you parnasa without you violating his will and his word. Because faith doesn't necessarily filter through into the way we actively think and engage. And this is precisely, says that Mitzudah's David, what the prophet is saying. And that's why Rabbeinu Bachai divides his words. Lama Taimur, why are you speaking that way? Why are you speaking that way indicates it's actually not correct. It's not true. But then he says, furthermore, you should know, know to the point that it becomes a part of you that it's not true. What does Melayadaita mean? You could figure this out logically. What does it mean, shamata? In Hebrew, means yeah, to hear means to understand. Like a person sometimes says, ah, I hear what you're saying now. I didn't hear it. Now I hear it. You heard it. You didn't understand it. The words fell on deaf ears, so to speak. It's a euphemism. You didn't understand what they were saying. So this can be understood. If you believe in God, don't you believe God's eternal? How could he get tired? He's God. This you can understand. You can understand that he created limitation. He isn't limited by it. He created those limits. He created fatigue. He created a renewal, a resurgence of strength. God created the world, Mikotza El Kotza, from its boundaries, from its limitations, its defining hallmarks, its characteristics. <laughs> but Hashem created all this. He doesn't get tired, doesn't get weary. What were you thinking? God can meet out justice in every time and in every place. So this has to be thought about. These are the, really the two points being made. Point one is being made is, this is the wrong approach. You're making a big mistake. Number two, you can feel differently if you choose to think differently. We can't choose how we feel but we can choose how we think. And by choosing a proper thought and a proper approach, we eventually can change the way we feel as well. Incidentally, this is how Maimonides explains the commandment of loving God, as is richly illustrated and elucidated in the teachings of Hasidus, on a, on a, on a, a midah, on an emotional connection. You can't give a commandment. So why did God do that? Because he wanted us before there comes Shema, understand through contemplation, through thought, through analysis. And as we learned a few moments ago, understand which is beyond your understanding in somewhat of a logical way because eventually it percolates and filters through into the recess of your heart and then radiates outwards into your thought, speech, and deed.
So this is really what we're talking about. And this, is, this then is the point of what is being made to us. We can necessarily intuit with our own minds that God is omnipotent and that God cares and that God knows and that God's engaged and that God's involved. So you need to think about this. If you think about it, you will nurture and develop a powerful trust in Hashem. And that is really what the fourth point is all about as we continue to narrate and delineate the journey and process of building our betachen. To be continued, please, if you liked it, say so. Hit the like button. Share it with your friends. Please tell others about this series. And uh, let's all try to keep building our trust in Hashem. If you haven't yet subscribed, I'd appreciate you doing so. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. And I look forward, Bezrat Hashem, to continuing to share these illuminating and inspiring teachings together. And hopefully soon, we get to see the end of the story with the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira, Ubi Amenu, Amen. Have a wonderful day.